We've had a lot of people visit this fall and a lot of people walk in. And if you're one of those like, well, and I met a couple of people this morning who came for the first day. What, what did I step into here? You know, um, what does it look like? So a couple things. Here's a, a radical revelation. Okay. For us this morning, we are church. Now, I know you know I'm brilliant because I deduce that from that, right? But a lot of times we use those words, right? And we use them so often we, they, we don't know what they mean anymore. So let's, let's just walk through um, what a church is. If you go back to the Greek, the Greek is the ecclesia, the called out ones. That actually has more significant meaning now than it did when it was first used because uh, ecclesia simply meant those who went to a meeting, those who went, for example, to a town meeting or those who went to uh, the forum or those who went to a festival were the called out ones and they were called the Ecclesia, the gathering, the people that went to that event. That word now has taken on a lot larger meaning because in the early days when Paul planted the church across the Mediterranean, called out ones came to be known as the ones who were called out from the world and into the kingdom of God. They had made this transition and they were called out of what they used to be a part of, and they were called to something brand new, a a relationship and a life with Jesus Christ. And so that became known as the church. If you go to Unger's Bible Dictionary, Merle Unger was a genius, spoke like seven languages. And if you've never seen that book before, it's cool. You can just flick through stuff and learn stuff, uh, spectacular stuff. But he, he says this about the church. First he says, it's the entire, in other words, one definition is the entire body of those who are savingly related, related to Christ. That would be called the church universal. So the whole church, all the people in the world who ever have, who are currently now or ever are going to be saved and uh, called Jesus as Lord and Savior, that's called the church universal. Matter of fact, when in the Apostles' Creed, when it says one holy Catholic apostolic church, Catholic means universal, all-inclusive, the whole church. It's that sense of the meaning. Second one is uh, uh, a particular Christian denomination. So, for example, uh, right in Mill Creek here, um, we tend to be, I'll, I'll talk about ours, but we tend to be Converge Northwest. And then if you go Chris Mangianelli at Mill Creek Foursquare, that would be Foursquare. And then Brandon Beals at Canyon Creek, that would be Assembly of God. And then if you go Gold Creek, that'd be Independent. And then, I mean, there's a number of different types of denominations or groupings within the universal church, and that would be another definition of it there. Um, and so uh, then a third definition is of all an aggregate of all the ecclesiastical communions professing Christ. So this would be talking about the church across the globe. So, for example, uh, the church meets across the globe on Sundays in all kinds of different aggregated ways, depending on what nation they're in. Uh, how the church meets in the United States is very different than how it aggregates in China, right? But it still comes together. It just comes together in different ways. And so talking about how it comes together, uh, it can be a single organized Christian group, right? So we can say, there is a church over in Snohomish. And we point to that and say, well, that's where the church is. And obviously the last one is it's a building. We say what? We are going to church. and Or I went to church this morning. We're talking about the building, the place. And, uh, and that certainly has connotation. But the reality is it's the people who filled the building that are the church. 
The church is the place where, or the building is where the church meets, right? But it's come to be synonymous that where the people gather, that is called the church. And so you think of different church facilities you've been in, uh, in your lifetime, and those all constitute churches that you went to, right? And we think that way and, and talk that way. So when we're talking about church, we're talking about people who are gathered together uh, in the name of Jesus. Now, when it comes to Northview, you say, okay, well, that's good. What about Northview? What is distinctive or what is, where does Northview come from? What's its history? Well, part of our history starts with what's called the Anabaptist movement. You know, the Anabaptist movement. What is an Anabaptist? All right. So let's do church history 101 very simply. If you go back, you have Jesus. Jesus uh, recruited a bunch of disciples. Then Jesus died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb. He rose again. After he rose again, those disciples were all commissioned as apostles. They went out, right? One of them, the Apostle Paul, established churches all across the Mediterranean world of what we now know as Greece and Italy and um, Turkey and, and that uh, part of the world. Started all these churches, many of which we know their names because they're books in the New Testament. And he started the church, and the church became uh, all populated all throughout uh, Europe, and that became known as the Catholic Church. All right, it was the only church that existed. It was the only church out there. It was the Catholic Church. In that Catholic Church, there were all kinds of different um, movements that started. You have the Jesuits, you have the Franciscans, you have the Benedictines. Can you tell I come from a Catholic background? Okay, there we go. They're all out there, right? And then you have the Reformation. Martin Luther, 95 Thesis, nailed on the Wittenberg door. Wittenberg's in Germany, nailed them on the thing. And there were a bunch of corruptions and things that had happened in the church over a period of uh, over a thousand years. And so uh, they, these were called the Reformers. And the Reformers sought to bring the church back to its original purity, its original stances on things. And so uh, you have people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, Zwingli, several others that became known as the Reformers. Then out of that group came another group that was known as the Anabaptists. And the Anabaptists were incredibly godly people. They were very devout. They uh, were very committed. And they, their biggest point was they disagreed with the Reformers because what they said was, we appreciate the reforms you put in place, but you haven't gone far enough because you still stick to some things that the Catholic Church held to that we don't think are accurate. One of the big issues was infant baptism. Uh, both the Catholic Church and the Reformers said they baptized infants into the church. And the Anabaptists said, no, you have to be of age, you have to confess Christ, and then you get baptized. You can't baptize infants into church because they can't make a choice. It has to be a person who can make a choice that can be baptized in. And this became a really heated debate. The Catholic Church and the Reformers said, we don't like you very much, Anabaptists. And matter of fact, if you want to get rebaptized, we'll help you. So what they did is they put them in gunny sacks, threw them in the river, and said, you can be permanently baptized. All right? And you can read the history on it. It's an amazing. But they got chased and persecuted and scattered all over and throughout Europe, finding different havens and different places of sanctuary. Uh, that they went, but part of that then uh, went to the nation of Sweden, and the the Swedish uh, believers fled to America seeking religious freedom, 
and they wound up in the Midwest. If you look at Michigan, Wisconsin, especially Minnesota and North Dakota, you can see where the immigrants landed. So you can tell by the names of the town where the Belgians landed, where the Polish landed, where the Germans landed. And if you go to Minnesota, you can tell where the Swedes and Norwegian landed. Okay, That's where Schwen and Ole went. All right, And so they landed there, and they you can tell by the names of the town all throughout the Midwest where they landed, and they came so that they could experience religious freedom. Our movement started uh, in Chicago. It was known as the Baptist General Conference. It later migrated to Minneapolis, and in Minneapolis right now is Bethel College, and uh, it's our school in our conference that uh, most of the people know. But also um, what went on was in the Northwest, we were a part of the first great wave of church planting that took place. And so the Swedes uh, were in uh, Minnesota, a high cultural center of the world, and they looked across the map and they said, you know, there's a foreign country over there named Ballard that we need to help those poor pagan people over in Ballard. And so we're going to ask people to go on the cutting edge of missions across the world and go to Ballard and, and start some churches for those people that don't know how to worship the Lord. And so uh, they jumped on trains or they took wagons across. And the first church was Ballard Baptist Church, was planted in 1893, all right? And if you look during that era, there's a whole, there was a couple guys, uh, Okerson is one of the names, and, um, um, oh, what's the other one? Lundgren uh, were guys that came and planted all up and down the coast. So from Vancouver all the way down to California, they planted these uh, Baptist General Conference churches that were basically meant to minister to Swedes who were in fishing, Swedes or Norwegians, who were in fishing or lumber or farming, just like they were back in the Midwest. And so all these churches started, and uh, they were planted as Swedish churches. They, they did the the services in Swedish, the music was in Swedish, right? And they did all that. Matter of fact, in the first service, uh, one of the, or in second service, my friend uh, Phil Pearson came up and he said, you know what, my great-grandparents were that group you're talking about. They came to America for that very reason. That's how I got here. And I went, see, we're still connected that way. But now we're no more Swedish than the man on the moon, right? We're a Heinz 57 hodgepodge of all nationalities and stuff. And obviously we don't do the services in Swedish anymore. But uh, that has now become, over the years, um, part of Converge Northwest. Converge Northwest is an association of churches. We have 96 churches that are in the Northwest here. So Converge Northwest is um, Washington, Oregon, uh, Idaho, Montana, and Alaska. That's the district uh, that we're in. And in the 50s and 60s, and then again in the 70s, there was another great wave of planting of churches. And so, for example, Norfolk comes from an extension of that planting movement because in 1972, a little church was started in the hinterlands of Seattle, the east side where nobody would go because it was all the way across the lake. In 1972, a church called North Shore Baptist, which is now North Shore Community Church, was started. Uh, a, a little tiny plant that met in the home of the family that planted it and uh, then launched, and that church grew, and then that church uh, launched a bunch of plants, as you'll soon see. We are part of Converge USA. Converge USA is almost 1,300 churches. There's 11 districts. 
We are one of those 11 districts. We are Converge Northwest. And so you have Converge Northwest, Converge California, Converge Southwest, Converge Midwest, um, all those kind of districts um, within. We have a new president, Scott Rideout. And I would tell you right now, there are more things happening in our our association of churches than has probably happened in the last 30 years. And I don't mean to discount the last 30 years because amazing things happen. I was part of that last 30 years. But I would tell you right now, there are more things happening. The next 10 years uh, could be the most unbelievable 10 years of seeing the Lord at work that we've ever seen in the history of our association. So it's kind of an exciting deal. Scott Rideout is our new president. Um, I'll get a picture of him and his wife Lisa and put it up so you can actually recognize who they are and see them. But if you want, um, what you can do is you can go online uh, and check out uh, the churches. Oh, I skipped right by that. Sorry about that. Um, you can go online and just go convergeusa.org and look up Converge and check it out. And you can also go Converge Northwest and look up Converge Northwest and what's going on in both of those. And you'd be able to get more information and tag um, where we're going. We are also part of uh, Church Planting Northwest. So part of Converge Northwest is this part of it, an arm, so to speak. Uh, it's called Church Planting Northwest, of which we are in the North Sound Network. So within uh, Church Planting Northwest, there's several networks. There's the North Sound Network, which is us here on the east side, the Mill Creek, Everett, that area. Then there's Flood the Sound, which is down Puyallup South in that area. There's another network building across the Sound over in the Bremerton area, and there's another one uh, starting up north. But um, Church uh, North Sound Network is 20-plus churches that come out of pretty much the plants that North Shore started over the last 20 years. And so there are plants or orphans that we've adopted, right, that uh, have been brought in together. And so this... uh, this church, Northview, was started as a plant out of North Shore Baptist, or now North Shore Community. And uh, Dan and Jamie Rump, Dan, Rupp, got to say my words right here. Dan and Jamie Rupp planted this church in the fall of 1999. So you can see that we're not that old. And it started in Jackson High School. How many were there at that time? Yeah, John and Jan, who else? Anybody else at the time? Yeah, Jerry Litke back there. Anybody else? So give these guys a hand. They were part of the first plant. That's a you know, spectacular thing. Honor to them for the thing they started. What they started, you're now benefiting from. All right, so um, Sergeant Jackson High School, we moved to Archbishop Murphy in 203. 204, I came. 208, we moved here. So most of you, this is what you know. It's always been here. It's been here forever and ever. Amen, right? But actually, it's only been a short period of time that we've been in this building. Um, we have two church plants that we've planted, uh, Impact Church of Redmond, Oregon, and then Awaken Church in Lake Wales, Florida. Um, both are um, going very well right now. Uh, Redmond has a new pastor and is picking up and doing really well. Um, and Lake Wales, uh, Awaken Church, uh, right now, Andrew, our former worship pastor, planted it. They're trying to, they have a family of six and the church is doing well, but they're not sure they're going to be able to survive with the salary level. So that one may get handed off here in the near future. We'll see what happens with it. You could pray for them. Andrew's asked us to pray. These are non-typical church plants, right? Um, because they are way far away from here. And that was not a strategic plan on ours. That was something that God did. Um, one was one of our associates was so sick we had to get him out of the Northwest. So we landed in uh, 
in uh, Redmond in Oregon, which is kind of high plateau desert. And uh, that's why they went there. And then God called Andrew to Florida uh, long before he ever came to Northview. Andrew wanted to be a worship guy. And he said, well, I'll listen to you, God, when I'm rich. And I'm like Chris Tomlin and I've made a lot of records, got a lot of money. Then you and I can talk. And God said, no, I don't think so. And he killed his worship, gave him, told him you have to plant a church. So when he came to the church, he said, I have to plant a church. And to do that, I have to repent. And to do that, I have to tell you a story. So he had to tell us the story. And so these are far away. Our next church plant, we hope, will be more conventional. We'd like to plant in the Lake Stevens area. You've heard me say that before. And that's where you get somebody who's the lead on the plant, and they build a team. And then that team we pray over, and they, they build momentum, and then they go out and find a place, and they launch, and they try to get a foothold in a community. And we believe a team model works really well. So uh, that's where we are. All right, our conference goal, why I said it's exciting, and here's the reason I said it's exciting. When we plant in our network, we call ourselves a network of church planting churches. Now, that may not make a lot of sense to you at first, but it will in a second. A church planting church is if we take and plant a church in Lake Stevens, that's not the end goal. The end goal is that that church would then plant a church. So the idea is that that church plant isn't successful until they've reproduced themselves, all right? And so the goal is to get reproducing churches that spill out, create life, and uh, create life beyond themselves. And so the goal in the conference uh, in the next 10 years is that we would plant 100 churches in the next 10 years. That's 10 churches a year. You think about that. In this area alone, and I'm talking about the greater Mill Creek area, Swath. Of course, Mill Creek is the center of the world, right? And the center swath, that would be, uh, if if that happens, what we're praying is that God would bring us the leaders, that God would bring us the people who feel called to do this, that God would bring us the places where we can land, and God would bring us the resources and the finances to pull it off. We're talking about we can change the face of the Northwest if we pull it off. It is a really big, hairy, bodacious goal. Okay, I myself go, wow. But they're going for it. And so we will be part of that. And you need to know that if you come here. Now, that's good and exciting, but it really doesn't tell you what type of church we are. Right? You've walked in here. Okay, so what, what goes on here? What are you? The best way to describe us is that we really are a family Bible church. Right? We are big on family. We're big on kids. We want to have the nursery packed. We want to have a Lots of kids in the children's program. We want to have a big junior high group. We want to have a big high school group. We want to have a college and career group. And that when they go off to college and stuff, they have a place to come back. And when they come back, they bring their person that they fall in love with. They have kids. They refill the nursery again. All right? We want to just have that thing roll through. And you say, well, I'm a single person. Then I don't count. No, 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 no. Nice try. No, don't even go there. I saw that, Carrie. Don't even hang there. All right? She's my friend. You're part of our family. We adopt you, right? We are all in the family. And we get family and we get connections and we hang together and we do things together. That's why we do things like church in the park. And that's why we, because we all do things together. And so it's that family atmosphere. Uh, Two things then out of that. Here's the two points we would uh, emphasize. Number one, we point people towards Jesus. All right, we point people to Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. That's in John 14, 6. Peter, in the very first sermon, when the church was actually launched at Pentecost, and 3,000 people came to know Christ on one day, which was an amazing thing. They had a lot of prep to run that thing, though, right? 
And uh, there was this little thing called the resurrection that had kind of happened. But when it happened, Peter said, there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And so as a result of that, we point people to Jesus. We point them to Jesus to worship him. We point them to Jesus to love him. We point them to Jesus to obey him. We point you to Jesus. We want you to meet him. We want you to connect with him. And what we're saying is this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then he's alive. And if he's alive, then he is present. I remember being in North Carolina when a guy said this to me and he said, Hey, Steve, do you think Jesus rose from the dead? I said, well, of course he did. Everybody knows that. He says, all right. Well, if he rose from the dead, then that means he's here right now. And I don't know why, but in my life at that moment, that was a unbelievable thought. And he said, therefore, if he didn't, I should quit doing what I'm doing and start doing what you're doing. And I thought, how does he know what I'm doing? But he said, if he rose from the dead, if he's really here, Steve, you should quit doing what you're doing and start doing what I'm doing. And I remember that making imminent sense in my mind to going, there ought to be a difference. There should be some type of reality to Jesus Christ. I just always wrote it off as he rose fine and he's over somewhere doing and no connection to me whatsoever. I really didn't have a, a piece that connected Jesus in my grill. And that's what we're talking about is connecting Jesus that way. Our whole goal is to introduce you and many others into his saving grace. Really, if you think about it, he's all we got. If you ask, what's, what's the cell? You know, what, what's the, what's the um, hook? Um, what's this all about? Really, if you want to know what the hook is, if you want to know what the cell is, you want to know what the catch is? The catch is Jesus. We want to introduce you to Jesus. We want you to walk with Jesus. We want you to know Jesus. And uh, that's our whole bit. We're not a group of people who have worked our way to God. We are not super spiritual. We are not perfect. We do not have it all together. We are a group of people who God has worked his way towards us. And some of us were easier than others. And some of us he's still working on. Right? Like all of us. <laughs> Come on, nod your heads. Don't, don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. Right? God has worked his way towards us. He has worked to find us. He has worked to get next to us. He's worked to get our attention. And therefore, we are re- great recipients of this great grace. And so just as others have pointed us towards him, so we likewise want to point others to him as well. That one person said it's uh, one beggar telling another beggar how to find bread. Right? And the idea there is you just pass along what you receive. And that's really all we want to do here is you're finding a group of redeemed people who ran into Jesus. Some of us didn't even want to run into Jesus, but we ran into him anyways. We found him, and now we're so taken by what we found in him, we just want to point you towards that as well. The gospel is this. Jesus came to earth. The gospel is good news. Evangelium, that's where we get the word evangelical from. And it just means good news. Idea, we should have done a, a six message off of that series when the blank hits the fan, right? We had catastrophe and loss and betrayal, and then we had pain and disappointment and silence. We should have had one more, and it should have been when joy hits the fan, right? When joy hits the fan. Because even the, the gospel is the idea of good news, the idea that Jesus came. He was fully God, fully man. He lived a sinless life. And then he did something totally unexpected. He died on the cross for our sin. 
a punishment that was deserved for us, a debt we could not pay. And He took that shot for us. And then He was buried. And then He rose again. And now He sits at the right hand of the Father from where He will judge the living and the dead. The Bible says it is appointed for man once to die and then comes the judgment. There is not a rollover. Okay, This is not like Kmart. There's no rollover plan. You get one shot at this puppy, then you meet him. And so the Bible encourages with all earnestness, make sure above all else, you may have a lot of things put together. Make sure you're right with God. Make sure you're in relationship with him. Make sure you've come to him uh, through Jesus. And so the scripture says, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That simply means you say in your heart, yes, Yes, Lord, I confess you. Yes, Lord, I need you. You know what, Lord? My kingdom's kind of crashing down around my ears. I make a great me. I make a lousy Jesus. I ought to let you be who you are. Let me be who I am. Let me surrender. Let me trust you. Let me have you do for me what I cannot do for myself. And that is save me. We can do a lot of things in life. One thing you can't do is save your soul from sin. The Bible says that's what Jesus came for. And so we point everybody to Jesus because he can do for you what nobody else can do for you. The second point is really close, really similar to it, and that is we point people to the Bible. Okay? The Bible's not just a book. The Bible is the Word of God. It is a living document. It is illuminated, highlighted, and infused by the Holy Spirit. It trumps culture. It is tremendously valuable for teaching, reproof, for correcting things, for showing us how to live a life that's pleasing to God. It gives you all of that when you go through it. It can cut behind any defense mechanism. It can cut behind any wall, any motive. It can lay out the purposes and intents of our hearts before God. You ever been filleted alive by the word? Reading and go, ah, that's me, rats. (laughs) You guys look very holy. Maybe that doesn't happen. Maybe that was second service, huh? Right? No, it, have you ever done that? Right? It, it, it gets you. And that's because it's, it's from God. It is one of the few books, if you think about it, in the world that actually tells us what's wrong with us. And now that's important. When I go to a doctor, the doctor may be a really nice guy, but it's not helpful if he gives me a wrong diagnosis. All right? If he says, well, I really don't want to tell you what's wrong with you, Steve, so here, I'll make something up. And now that I've made this up, I'll give you a prescription for the thing I made up for. Would you be confident in that diagnosis? Not, not me, okay? When I go to the doc, I want to know straight up. I tell docs, and Pam will tell you this. I go to the doc, tell me, I'm from a farm in Wisconsin. Don't flower it. Tell me the straight stuff I want to know. Okay, here's the deal. Even if I don't like the diagnosis, at least I'm grateful it was accurate. Okay? And that's what the Bible does. It gives accurately what's wrong with us. It talks about our rebellion. It talks about our stiff hearts. It talks about our, you know, la, 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 can't hear you, right, kind of thing, and how we do that towards God. It does a bunch of things. It trains us. It equips us, uh, mentors us, tells us how to persevere and endure. We all love those lessons so well. How to live for God no matter what the circumstances. It holds us accountable. You know, the biggest thing the Bible does is remind us, right, of what we already know. Uh, it informs us of the promises of God, which are tremendous. Uh, it highlights the battle between the flesh, the sinful nature, and the spirit, and maps the narrow gate towards heaven. It says you cannot do what you want. 
You've got to do what He's telling you to do. And it moves us that way. We hold it in highest regard and with greatest respect. And we encourage people to read it. By the way, if you're on the reading plan this year, we have four different plans this year, if you're new or visiting us, uh, to read through the Bible in a year. We have four different ways to do it. And you probably punted that thing in somewhere somewhere and said, well, I've lost it and I biffed it and it's out the window, so I'll start over next year. No, 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 no. Stop. You've got two whole months left. That's a lot of time. Do you know how much you can read in two months if you shut the TV off? Matter of fact, if you shut the TV off and read the Bible, the Bible will tell you about what the Bible, what the TV is deceiving you about. Right? And, you know, we just had, on Friday, we had Harris III here, and he was an illusionist, did some fantastic stuff. And what he did was he said, look, I have just done something that you, your mind tells you is real. But the truth is it's not an illusion. It's, it's sleight of hand. And it's, he says, I've worked very hard to be very good at this because my whole thing is to deceive your senses. And he says, that's what the world wants to do is deceive your senses. And he walked through how deception works. And he says, all deception works this way. This is how deception sets you up. And he said, even I, as a person who does magic, had gotten deceived by the things of the world. And he talked about how he... Uh, really came into a relationship with Christ and, and really let the Christ be Lord of his life. And then at the end, he used a straitjacket illustration. He said, you know, we're bound up by a lot of things. But he talked about how, once he got the straitjacket off, which was a pretty amazing process, he said, you know what? We're bound by a lot of things, but in Christ, and he dropped it to the floor, says, you can be set free. Anything got you in a straitjacket that you can't get free of? You know it's got you. You used to master it. It now masters you. He said, that's what the Bible tells us about how it frees us up. So you've got two months left. So pick it up. Pick it, pick it back up. Get back into it. And you will make it by the end of the year. And if you do, you'll be blessed if you do it. God always blesses when you get back into the Lord. So let me encourage you. Pick it back up and get started again. The third point is related to these two. And that's just the coaching of the Holy Spirit. I wanted to have kind of a a line across with a, a divide like this so it would kind of be this teeter-totter effect and it, you would see how they play off against each other. But Zach says, dude, I don't know how to do that. And I said, well, okay, well, we'll imagine it, all right? So, um, but you can see the line on the, on the left to your left there, the Holy Spirit, faith, surrender, and trust. And then the line on the right, works, effort, strategy, and plans. We do not start with the works, effort, strategy, and plans and then work towards the Holy Spirit, faith, surrender, and trust. You start with the Holy Spirit, faith, surrender, and trust and then those produce the works, the, the efforts, the strategy, and the plans. It says we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, the works come out of the grace he gives us. We don't work our way towards God. God works his way towards us. But when he works his way into us, he's got a plan. He creates stuff out of us. And so there's a tremendous need for the coaching of the Holy Spirit. The process of salvation is by grace and faith, and so is the process of sanctification. In other words, what I'm trying to say, it's a collaborative effort. It takes both sides to make it work. We're cooperating with the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 says that we are to stay in step with the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5 is the passage with the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness self-control. But then a verse two later, it says, we are to stay in step with God. In other words, not race ahead of his coaching, not drag behind, but stay in step. 
What's your pace? What's your pace? What's your rhythm? What has the Holy Spirit coached you on? The Holy Spirit leads us in and into truth. The Holy Spirit leads us and grows us to be like Christ. The fruit of the Spirit. By the way, the Holy Spirit's not weird. Okay, We think of Father, Son, then there's this weirdo, the Holy Spirit. No, no, no. Okay, He's every bit as balanced, every bit as important as the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit gives gifts for the edification and building up of the body. The Holy Spirit teaches and trains us how to love God and how to love others. Why is that so critical? Why do you need the Holy Spirit? Because there's a basic assumption we've been deceived on in our humanity, and the number one thing is that we are good at loving. Think about this. God teaches the New Testament. If you've read through the New Testament, three-quarters of it, he coaches us to what? Love one another. The Bible says, how can you say you love God when you don't love your brother who you can see? And we say, ding, right, Jeopardy. Answer, easy. Because God's easy to love and the other people around me are idiots. They frustrate me, they irritate me, they don't do what I want them to do, and they are hard to love, so I will love God because he's easy to love and I will ignore the rest of the people around me. And God says, no, 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 no. You can tell your love for God by how you love the people around you. Because the same Jesus you say is in you is in that turkey over there, right? And so we need real coaching from the Holy Spirit. You, I see this all the time. How do I know this is true? Because it walks in my office all the time. I see a young couple, they walk in, they go, eh, here's the basic gist of the Spirit of what they say. Mitch, glad you're here. I bet you got one or two things you can say, but you know what? We got this puppy nailed. We got this love thing down, and the reality is you could save your breath. Why don't you just do the ceremony? We'll show you how it's done. Right? We are not like other couples. We got this thing nailed, so uh, we don't need your help. What do you and I know that have been married for a while? Boy, they're going to hit the fan, right? Here's why. Because we believe we're good at loving. We need the Holy Spirit. If you don't think you don't need the Holy Spirit... Just try to love people on your own steam. Try to love people on your own power. And you will very quickly realize you are bankrupt. You can't do it. That's why we need the Holy Spirit. So uh, encouragement there is that we need the Holy Spirit so we can be a great church, not a good church. Five times in, from John 14 to John 17, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit and he calls him the Spirit of Truth. Okay? The Spirit of Truth. Look at this passage. It's... it's Uh, Very similar to the other ones. It says, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak of His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He'll speak, and He'll disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine, and therefore I said that He takes of Mine and will disclose it to you. In other words, the only way we really have to know the heart of the Father is through what the Holy Spirit will disclose to us about that Father. And so we need it. And so if we're going to be a great church, we're going to need the Holy Spirit to disclose to us how to be a great church and how to love in the era and place of when he's planted us. Steve Welling, who's our district executive minister, said uh, at our annual meeting two weeks ago that he doesn't want a conference of good churches. He wants a conference of great churches. Well, what does a great church do? Well, great churches follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Great churches move away from sin and towards the Holy Spirit. Great churches are healthy churches. 
You know, when I go to a pastor's conference, the number one question on the table when you walk in, how big is your church? I've never had anybody ask me, how healthy is your church? Vastly different question. If I could have any one thing God would give me, you know, like he came to Solomon, I would go, God, please give my people health. Give them spiritual health. Help them see outside of the snags and the things that bind them. Give them spiritual health. Why? Because I know if we were healthy, other people go, what happened to you? What, how did you get that? I want that too. That's prayer in my heart right there. Churches, great churches are healthy churches. Great churches repent quickly. Great churches serve graciously. Great churches love compassionately. Great churches practice sacrificial generosity. And we want to be a great church. By the way, I would tell you, Northview, it is an honor and a privilege to pastor you as a church because I think you're a great church. The faith that started this thing, the faith that held this together, the faith that has made the last 10 runs, and the faith we're going to see in the next 10 years, absolute privilege to be part of the ride. You make things possible that couldn't otherwise happen. It is an absolute joy for me to hitch my wagon to you. You need to know that. So cool. Here's the thing. We don't measure it in numbers. We measure it in health. Measure it in heart. Are we healthy? Do we have heart? Zach would call it passion. Do we have passion for Christ? Or are we just there going, yep, I acknowledge that. Yep, I acknowledge that. We're all in our head. Where's the passion? Well, you have passion with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask the communion service to come forward, guys, if you would, and begin to service for communion. That really appreciate you doing that. And while they're doing that, I want to talk to you about love for a second, this uh, topic that we got onto here. In John 13, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. In other words, Jesus says the telltale mark of how people are going to know that he has risen from the dead is not because we've read through the Bible, although that's a really good thing. It will not be because we attend church, although that's a really good thing. It will not be that we pray a lot together, although that's a really good thing. He says other people are going to know that he rose from the dead by the way we love each other. They're going to walk in and go, I sense the love of God in that place. There was something about that group of people that was different. There was something that was tangible. And by the way, we can't produce that on our own. That has to come from the Holy Spirit again. He says, by this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. If you, it's entirely possible, you know, with Halloween and daily saving time and stuff, you didn't hear anything I said this morning. If you didn't, that's okay, because I want you to hear this one thing. So often when we read this, we think about how we have to love one another so that we change so that people can see Jesus, right? I want to suggest an idea to you this morning. Here's the key idea. Here's the whole thing of this morning. Here's what Jesus thinks about love. He really believes that his love for us will change us. Think about, stop, get out of your world, get out of your perspective for a second, jump into his. He really believes his love for us will change us. He believes that he will love us in such a way that it will radically change the way we operate. That it will, we will say no to sin. 
that we will say yes to the things of the kingdom. Why? Because we experienced his love and he thinks it'll change us. And when it comes to communion, you know, we're talking about communion. Really, one of the pictures for a church is a bride. I left this one to the end. Right? We are the bride of Christ. Probably the most important point. In Ephesians 5, it says, Husbands, love your wives. Listen to this. Just as Christ loved the church. How did he love the church? It says he gave himself up for her. He died on the cross for her so that he might sanctify her, set her apart as a treasured, as a treasure set her apart, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. In other words, showering off the dirt, the grime, the gunk, the stains, that he might present to himself a church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Another translation says no stains. Wouldn't it be awesome to live with no stains? No blemishes. That she would be holy and blameless. In another place, Jesus says it this way in Isaiah 62, And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. And you will no more be termed forsaken and your land will no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And when we come to communion, there's a lot of pictures and there's great ones. We've walked through a bunch of them here. But one of the pictures is marriage. That Jesus is having communion with his bride. And that's, a, that's an incredibly beautiful picture. I, I remember my wedding. And I remember standing in a spot right here, real similar. And I remember everybody standing, so I couldn't see my bride, that one right there, and her dad walk in. But I remember when they turned that corner. I'll never forget that picture. That picture is as real right now, this moment, as it was 21 years ago. I remember that turning that corner, and I went, wow. You know what was awesome? I had chosen her. But you know what was even more spectacular? She had agreed and chosen me. She was all in. You know, if you think about a bride, what does a bride do? She's all in for her husband. She abandons herself for her husband, right? And in that, there's this picture of great joy. And one of the pictures that communion brings is that picture of being all in. Jesus says, the husband says, I'm all in for you. You want to know how much I love you? I laid my life down for you, bride. I love you totally. I am all in. He says, eat this in memory of me. But then when it comes to the cup, what does the cup symbolize? Joy. Right? When you think of a married couple and they have a glass of wine together, they have joy together. Right? There's celebration of relationship. I'm yours, you're mine. And we, we celebrate together. And what Jesus wants to know is, He knows He's all in for us. He wants to know, are we all in for Him? Will you be my bride? You be a good church? You be a great church. What do you want to be? He says, I want you to be my bride. I want you all in. I want you to abandon yourself to me. Let go of the idols and the things that are tantalizing you and chasing after you. Come back to me. 
Let's have joy together. He says, if you will, we'll have great fellowship. He said, drink this in memory of me. We're going to stand and worship. We're going to do a, a great song that catches all this together. And this song will probably express the spirit of your heart, so sing with great gusto. But let's uh, sing this to him as the bride.